0: a great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated, please. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not.
1: or democratic process.
2: Whether we shape the future in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our
1: choices. If we succeed, Now Living, that we mastered our moment.
0: Right Turns Only, this is The Right Take. Hello, everybody. How's it going? I'm Eric Lendrum, here with my co-host, Jacob Grantstaff. And of course, as you can tell from the title of this episode and recent news events, uh, this of course is one event where we, you know, everyone is talking about this in the mainstream media. We say that we hear the right take, generally like to stay away for focus on stories that aren't getting major mainstream coverage because, of course, you're going to hear all about those stories in the mainstream media, whether it's Chinese balloons or Biden declassified documents, what have you. But this is one that simply cannot be ignored because of its major societal political and cultural implications and of course how tragic how saddening and enraging of a story it is and that is of course the uh shooting the school shooting at a presbyterian school in nashville carried out by a deranged tranny leftist we will be talking about that Uh, but before we get to that we do have some other topics here that uh we've we haven't talked about this for a while we've stayed away from this for too long but we must go back to 2024 presidential politics because a lot has changed in the race for president and i am all the happier to be able to talk about it here this is too good for me as you guys know of course i am a huge fan of president trump we here at the right take do ultimately support president trump's bid for the republican nomination for a third consecutive time in 2024 there are plenty of arguments uh, about in favor of him i think many reasons why he is better than desantis and we have i'm sure jacob you have Friends who are fans of DeSantis' as just as I do, but it has to be Trump. This is his time to shine, and for that reason, it is quite nice to see DeSantis's not campaign, because remember, he hasn't announced yet, his not campaign is already completely imploding. So basically, the summary here is over the last few months, despite a surge in polling immediately after his landslide re-election in early November of 2022, DeSantis's odds against President Trump now seem to be on a sharp decline. So to recap it, for a period from, from early November, pretty much right after his re-election, to about mid-February, DeSantis appeared to be leading Trump in most head-to-head polls, when it's just the two of them and nobody else, and often these were by single-digit margins, whereas Trump still generally had a lead in broader polls of the entire primary field, taking other candidates into account, like Nikki Haley and uh, others who may run. uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's now in the race. Tim Scott, anybody else who may run. Uh, Trump consistently outpolled DeSantis in these particular polls, with six exceptions from that same time period, from November to mid-February. But... February, mid-February was the turning point. And since then, Trump has completely outpolled DeSantis in both primary-wide polls and head-to-head polls. In polls of the overall field, Trump has led DeSantis now in the last 20 consecutive polls from various pollsters and polling firms all across the country. And in the head-to-head polls, the last six consecutive polls have Trump in the lead by double-digit margins." Also, something that's interesting to know here, general election polling with Biden, more often than not, gives Trump a better chance of winning than DeSantis. One poll that's worth highlighting here is from Emerson College in late February that had Trump beating Biden by four points, 46% to 42%, while in the same exact poll conducted over the same time, same sample size, DeSantis loses to Biden by the same margin, 44 to 40%. That is an eight-point swing in Trump's favor if he is the nominee versus an eight-point swing in Biden's favor if DeSantis is the nominee. And it goes without saying, polling with Kamala Harris as the nominee overwhelmingly favors Trump to win. Trump has clobbers her in all but four polls of this matchup that have been done thus far. By contrast, Harris has outpolled DeSantis in the majority of polls, pitting them against each other. So to suggest that DeSantis could be such a bad candidate, he could lose to Kamala Harris— I don't think it's far-fetched at all. And of course, it bodes well for Trump's chances. We got to look back here at just a couple of the decisive turning points. What exactly has led up to this point? And we'll get to the specifics of the -the behind-the-scenes drama in a bit. But I think the first nail in the coffin had to be what we talked about a few episodes ago with uh, Biden's trains to nowhere, East Palestine, Ohio. Trump made an absolutely brilliant move. And his decision to go there, to visit the scene of the disaster, to bring truckloads of bottled water for people who need it that he paid for with his own money, he did that. The fact that he visited even before the Biden administration did, before Pete Buttigieg, the secretary of transportation, and before Biden himself, Biden himself still actually has not visited East Palestine. And at this rate, he probably never will. It's not in the news anymore. He's not ever going to visit. So Trump went there and proved that he cared about the American people more than any establishment politician on the left or the right. It's kind of funny to me because, you know, despite the fact that DeSantis has a flair for publicity stunts, you know, he loves touting about how he busts illegal aliens up to New York City and D.C., whatever. He was oddly absent when it came to this chance for a slam dunk opportunity to make him look really good. He was nowhere to be seen or heard on East Palestine, which is kind of a, a common trend you'll notice. It's not a it's not a one-off. It's a trend of with DeSantis that on the major issues, he's nowhere to be seen or heard. He was nowhere to be seen in the speaker battle. He did not come out in favor of anybody on either side, McCarthy or anti-McCarthy. He waited until the 11th hour to give a weak endorsement in the RNC chair race. And then, of course, the reports and rumors of a possible Trump arrest and indictment. Uh, we'll come to that in a bit. I think the final nail in the coffin during that very short period was CPAC. President Trump was there. Obviously, he gave the final speech and other presidential candidates were there, including Nikki Haley, Vivek Vivek Ramaswamy, and even a nobody also ran candidate. Some goofy businessman from Michigan named Perry Johnson was there and he had volunteers there at CPAC. Everybody who's running as a Republican was there except for Ron DeSantis. Hmm. Funny thing. Why? Why is that? Was he maybe just not invited because the event organizers, you know, Matt Mercedes Schlapp obviously preferred to defer to Trump because he's popular with the base. No, actually, DeSantis skipped out on CPAC. This is reported by Newsweek. He skipped CPAC to attend a fundraiser with high dollar donors. Meanwhile, of course, President Trump was there and he gave a speech and not just any speech. It was not just a typical rally speech. This was an absolutely fire speech. I think one of his best speeches ever that laid out a clear platform for 2024. He reiterated the most popular campaign talking points on immigration, justice for the J6ers, et cetera, et cetera. And he also introduced several brand new ideas in that speech, such as financial incentives for a new baby boom in the United States, creating new cities, et cetera, et cetera. Like he held nothing back. It was a great speech. He, of course, had that famous line, that powerful line that uh, Tim Kilcullen and I agreed was the line of the night, the I am your retribution, speaking to the j Sixers and others who've been persecuted by Biden's deep state, you know, pro-lifers and whatnot. It was a great speech, and DeSantis was nowhere to be seen. So what else has he been doing wrong lately that has led to a complete implosion on the DeSantis camp? Um, as his polling numbers have, have collapsed. He's made only a number of further huge gaffes that have only earned him the ire of the base up to this point. And But the reports that the crazy Soros-backed DA of Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, was going to indict and arrest President Trump uh, related to the Stormy Daniels thing, DeSantis was quiet on this for almost a week. He said nothing. Vivek Ramaswamy put out a statement about it. Plenty of other people gave their opinions on it, one way or the other, most, of course, condemning it, rightfully so. DeSantis finally did address this, not in his own prepared statement, but at a press conference that he was at addressing something else completely. He was giving a speech, some policy speech. Uh, The sign on his podium says Big Brothers Digital Dollar. No idea what that's about, but okay. So he was talking about something else. He, He then took questions from reporters and a reporter then asked him his stance on the reports of a Trump arrest. And this is the first thing the governor of Florida, the so-called new leader of the GOP, had to say.
1: You're talking about this situation with, and look, I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to, to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just, I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that if you have a prosecutor who is ignoring crimes happening every single day, in his jurisdiction, and he chooses to go back many, many years ago uh, to try to use something about porn star hush money payments, you know, that's an example of pursuing a political agenda and weaponizing the office. And um, I think that that's fundamentally wrong.
0: So, of course, he starts off, he couldn't help himself, he has this smug little smirk on his face, he had to make fun of President Trump, he had to poke fun of, like, hush money for porn stars, (laughs) to laughter from, who is it there, who's gathered? The press. He made a joke that he knew the mainstream media would laugh at. That right there is signaling that all he cares about is the approval of the mainstream media. But beside that, he then... He buries the lead basically. He does not come outright with this is terrible. This is stuff that third world banana republics do and dictatorships do the arrest of a popular former president who is now running for the presidency again. No, he has to start off with like, oh, well, it seems like Bragg is soft on crime and maybe he should be focusing on arresting. Others. Like, No, he, he has to completely bury it even then on like a more of a, oh, this guy's soft on crime approach. From a strategic standpoint, DeSantis gains
2: for Trump to be arrested because the only chance that DeSantis has of getting the nomination is if Trump is arrested, if he stands trial, if he's convicted by a banana court jury in New York- and then he is sentenced to, say, two or three years in prison, and he's in prison during the Republican primaries. Now, it's not inconceivable that Trump could win from a jail cell, I think but it's could, highly honestly. unlikely. I, 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 I do too, but that at the same time, DeSantis feels that he would have a better chance of making the case to the American people that he has a better shot at beating Biden as a free man as opposed to Trump who isn't able to do rallies, isn't able to debate, isn't able to campaign in the hopes that people will spring him from prison by electing him president. And so that, in DeSantis' mind, that is the the end game. And then as president, DeSantis could then be the hero and be the one to pardon Trump and let him out of prison. And then he wins the approval of Trump fans. And then cruises to re-election in 2028. I think that's, in his mind, that's his little fantasy playing out.
0: Exactly, yeah. He knows this is good for him, and that's why he stayed away from it. He didn't want to address it because, again, politically, he could benefit greatly from coming out and being a passionate warrior on President Trump's side. Because here's the thing, he's governor of Florida, President Trump is a resident of Florida. He is a constituent of DeSantis. DeSantis, if he really wanted to go hardcore, friends of mine have said they would really love for him to do this. I would have respected DeSantis for this. I would still support Trump over DeSantis. But if DeSantis came out and said, I, as governor of Florida, refuse this extradition, you are not coming here to arrest this former president who lives in my state for your political brownie points based on this bogus garbage case, which again, as we know now, is falling apart completely. He, If he pulled that that would have been legendary. But of course, no, he he couldn't talk about it because his ego wouldn't allow him to defer to Trump in any way or be supportive of Trump. And we'll come back to that, to, to how his ego is clearly at play here in just a bit. But he, no, he had to make jokes about it. He had to be you know coy and make a joke that he knew the mainstream media would laugh at. And it just turned a lot of people off towards him. It exposed him for what he really is. And kind of on that note, you're seeing this transition that DeSantis is trying to make himself out to be a man of the people. He's trying to go the populist route like President Trump. And it's not working. It's demonstrably false. And it's working against him because he has no self-awareness. This man, a career politician that he is, has no idea how he comes across. Case in point, he did an interview recently with Piers Morgan on the British outlet talk radio, and this is goodness. Listening to this, tell me, listen to this clip, Jacob, and tell me if you notice a bit of a discrepancy here in what uh, DeSantis declares here with regards to his relationship with donors. So here's the thing: I think you know th- there is. Uh,
1: these are people who are in the political class, journalist class, politicians, and like D.C. in particular. They get mad. I don't do the cocktail parties. I don't like rubbing elbows with other people. I like doing my job and then spending time with my family. That's just what I do. A lot of the people that are criticizing, you know, they would say, oh, he doesn't do well with, with, with donors. He doesn't glad hand with them. And yet I raise more money than mm-hmm. any non-presidential candidate in the history of America. Are you kidding me? So we tend to do we, we, we do well. But I do think that, you know, I deal better with regular people than I do with some of the people in the political class.
0: So, do you catch the inconsistency there, Jacob? He says, like, I I don't rub... Well, he
2: raises a bunch of money from those donors.
0: (laughs) Exactly! DeSantis needs these big donors. Did you think he even realized, Jacob, in that moment that he contradicted himself in 10 seconds? He just rolled right along as if everything he was saying made sense. He's counting on the audience not
2: knowing that he has actually staked his strategy on getting the big wigs of the Republican Party like the Bush people behind him. There's multiple paths that he could have taken to try to get the nomination. He could try to go the populist route and go for blue-collar workers. The problem is he doesn't connect with those workers and those voters the same way that Trump does. And so up against Trump, he might be able to pull 10 percent of them, but that's just not enough. So his best bet was to get the money early and then use the money to try to break in. And it, people who have been following the race understand that he is completely full of crap in this
0: interview. The math, the electoral math just is not on DeSantis' side. Realistically, and because you know, again, this primary is not a head-to-head. If this was a head-to-head just the two of them, nobody else, maybe DeSantis would have a shot because the Rhinos and the Never Trumpers would coalesce around him. You'd have the billionaires on his side. But, of course, even then, he might not win, but... Of course, it's not a head-to-head. You've got Nikki Haley. You've got Vivek Ramaswamy. uh, John Bolton is running. Don't forget John Bolton is running. Uh, Tim Scott has formed an exploratory committee, and he's most likely going to run. Chris Christie now saying he'll have a big announcement in like 60 days, which means he's going to run. Mike Pence may run. Asa Hutchinson. Larry Elder may even run. These people, every single one of them, I guarantee you this, there is not a single candidate who can run who can take away votes from people who otherwise were going to vote for Trump. Every Republican voter, sea to shining sea, who wants to vote for Trump is going to vote for Trump. He is first to their mind. They are not going anywhere else. These other people, Nikki Haley and everyone else, they are only going to take votes away from DeSantis and he knows that and that's why I said the moment Nikki Haley announced to run I said right there I think I think that's proof either DeSantis isn't going to run after all or people in the know people on the inside in the GOP establishment know that he does not really have it in him to win this thing so it's funny you mentioned that especially Jacob that you know he comes across you know he needs the donors if nothing else and he comes across as so clueless and out of touch that will be we'll circle back to that as the final point circle back as Jen Psaki would say but one more thing I want to highlight here this is from another interview DeSantis gave recently to Eric Bowling on Newsmax and oh this one blows me away this one is just as bad in a lot of ways as the donor one
3: would you be willing to serve as vice president with Donald Trump
1: I think I'm probably, um, you know, more of, a, uh, of an executive guy. I mean, I think that you want to be able to do things. That's part of the reason I got in. I got into uh, this job is because we we have action. We're able to make things happen, and I think that's probably w- what I'm best suited for.
0: So he. S- he- in that moment, he says, oh, oh! I basically without saying no, he says, no, I would not be President Trump's VP. Can you imagine, Jacob, how many people every four years on both sides are chomping at the bid to become vice president? And yet this guy basically just had the audacity to come out and say, no, I wouldn't even be vice president like that betrays a huge level of arrogance. That again shows his ego is getting in the way because he can't stand the idea of being VP to Trump. He doesn't want to be under Trump's shadow anymore. The billionaires and ever Trumpers have successfully gotten to him and pandered to his ego, have stroked his ego, and now he is convinced he is the greatest thing since sliced bread, that he is even better than Trump. But the other thing I got to note there he says, of course, you know, I- I'm more of an executive. I'd rather, you know, be in an executive position to get things done. DeSantis' career, however, and the steps he has taken to get to this point in his political career do not line up with that. That, that explanation just, just doesn't wash here. So, of course, he first was a member of the U.S. House from Florida. From the 6th District, he served uh, three terms. He was elected in 2012, then reelected in 14 and 16. And then, of course, in 18, he ran for governor. But what a lot of people forget, and this is crucial, there's one other race that DeSantis ran in in between his congressional tenure and his run for governor. And that was the U.S. Senate in 2016. Uh, In 2016, of course, Rubio was one of of the many candidates who ran against President Trump, one of the 16 other Republicans in that primary. And hilariously, I didn't even see this coming, he got demolished in the Florida presidential primary that year. Trump clobbered him By I think like an over 20 point margin, Trump wasn't even a resident of Florida at the time. He was still a resident of New York. Yeah, he had Mar-a-Lago, but he was still a New Yorker. He crushed Rubio in his own home state. And at that point, I remember the video of Rubio like the day after he was walking through the halls of Congress. Reporters swarming around him asking, you know, Senator Rubio, what do you have to say you know, basically about getting blown out in your own home state? Announced that he was not going to run for re-election in the Senate, which was that same year, 2016, and that he was going to retire from politics. It very much had that vibe to me of Nixon's last speech, quote unquote, when he lost the race for governor of California in 1962 and everybody thought Nixon was done. You know, he said, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. And of course, that ended up not being the case, but very much had the sense Rubio was done. He was out of politics. He was going to retire. So it became an open primary, and a whole bunch of Republicans then jumped in to that race to succeed Rubio. And one of those candidates who initially ran as a Republican was Congressman Ron DeSantis. And he did rack up a decent amount of endorsements when he ran. He was endorsed by uh, Family Research Council, Club for Growth. Uh, Marshall Blackburn endorsed him. John Bolton endorsed him. Interesting. Uh, but every single poll in that primary, the Rubio list polls, Showed that DeSantis was not the favorite to win the nomination. He was down consistently against another congressman at the time, a fellow by the name of David Jolly. But David Jolly, by the way, is now a outspoken Never Trumper and a frequent guest on mainstream and left wing uh, cable news networks and whatnot, bashing Trump constantly and you know bemoaning where the Republican Party is now. So had it had Rubio not. Reversed course and decided to run again. After all, at which point Jolly and DeSantis, those dropped out to run for reelection. We would have had a most likely had a never Trump Republican as senator from Florida right now. DeSantis would have given us that. And the contradiction here, of course, is he said in that interview with uh, Bowling on Newsmax, he said, "I'm more of an executive guy. I like to be in a position of power as a, as a governor. That's why I get things done." Being a U.S. senator. Is the exact opposite of an executive position. It's the worst possible position to be in a government. Realistically, your jurisdiction is an entire state, and yet you have no power. You're not a governor. You're one out of a hundred people in Washington D.C. You know, squabbling in the Senate chamber. You know, at least members of the Congress. You know, members of the House. Their jurisdiction is a, is, is a smaller district, a portion of a particular state. So, to Desantis, Mister, I'm an executive. I will only run for a position that has me that gives me the power and the autonomy to do what I want. Then why'd you run for Senate, Ron? That that this doesn't make sense. You, you get the pattern here, guys. This is why this man, at the end of the day, he's done good things in Florida. You know, he was supported by Trump in 2018. He is a career politician through and through. And why do you think then th- that the establishment class, the donors, are trying to use him as the ultimate battering ram against President Trump? Because they know he's an establishment politician. They know they can control him. That's why they're donating to him. In that he, if in somehow he wins the nomination and then the general election and he's president, he answers to them. He will answer to Paul Singer, a major gay rights supporter. He will answer to Ken Griffin, a never-Trumper and former Obama donor. He will answer to Rupert Murdoch, the head of Fox News. And to that point, again, to bring it back to the main point here, this is all falling apart they saw a window there immediately after his re-election his landslide re-election that this is our guy this is the this is our chance finally to take out trump they've been cycling through other non-trump possible picks for a while it was nikki haley at first then remember jacob for a while christy gnome suddenly was the big thing after she gave that speech at uh, mount rushmore before trump uh at the fourth of july celebration in 2020 uh yeah sorry. the
2: governor of what like five hundred thousand people
0: exactly yeah no one knew who she was before this speech that was her big claim to fame i was the opening act for president trump like okay cool but just because some musician is the opening for pink floyd doesn't mean they're the next pink floyd that
2: was basically fox news just searching for their next sarah palin
0: yes yes exactly exactly and this again the establishment class looking for an anti-trump candidate and eventually it fell onto ron desantis he is kind of the one now but it seems at this point even they are realizing that one more thing, I just have to add. By the way, that this this is just hilarious to me. So again, people say that oh, because Ron DeSantis uh, won a landslide victory in twenty twenty two, that means that you know he is the he's the the leader of the party now. He ter- he won Florida in a landslide, and what people what I always point out when people say like oh yo, clearly DeSantis won by a landslide, so that means he's the leader now. Every statewide Republican in Florida won by a landslide. Marco Rubio was we've just got done talking about. He was reelected by a 16-point margin in 2022. DeSantis was reelected by a 19-point margin. So does that mean Rubio is the future of the party again, like he was right after 2012, after Mitt Romney's loss, when they all tried to astroturf him? And if anything, interestingly enough, this is worth pointing out. One statewide Republican candidate in Florida actually did outperform Ron DeSantis in terms of percentage and vote totals. DeSantis, of course, beat Charlie Crist 59% to 40%. 4.6 million votes, 4,614,000 4, votes to Christ's 3,100,000. Attorney General Ashley Moody was reelected against Democrat Aramis Ayala by a 21-point margin, 60.6% to 39.4%, and won more votes overall than DeSantis. It's not just a percentage thing. She got 4,651,000 votes, so outperforming DeSantis by about 40,000 votes. So is Ashley Moody the future of the Republican Party now? Should she run against Trump? We've talked about the billionaires who are donating to him. What about the people who are working on this so-called, this not campaign? You know, he's not really running. He hasn't announced yet, but he's basically got a shadow campaign already in the works. Who is running it? A radio host out of New York named Mark Simone went on Fox News to say that he has the answer for who is running DeSantis' campaign. And this is not shocking in the slightest when you hear what he has to say.
1: Uh, listen, he's the greatest governor in America. He's not great as far as campaign skills. He may get there, but he doesn't have them mm-hmm. yet. Uh, and I, Who's I, running his campaign? The Bushes are all tangled up with him. Uh, Bush, that can raise him a billion dollars and get him all kinds of money. The Jeb Bush, Bush. Jeb Bush. George Bush. Yeah, they're great. Is Karl Rove involved. Karl Rove. Will he, be the, Karl Rove is involved. I assume he'll be the coach on the field. I think he is. But do you know that Karl, he's been advising DeSantis? He's been Karl advising Rove. him. That's why DeSantis is going get a little better and better every mm-hmm. week. But uh, Karl's a pretty smart fellow. They're all very smart. You saw what they did
0: for Jeb Bush. <laughs> it works in normal times i don't think they're uh, ready for donald trump carl rove is so smart look how well he worked out for jeb bush you know like a cockroach who will not go away he's always on fox news with that stupid whiteboard he's always advising some presidential candidates he according to mr simone here who seems to be kind of in the know he is running to campaign and even then it seems clear. Even the hardcore DeSantis supporters who are all over Twitter, always bashing Trump and Trump supporters, even they know. that they, they see the writing on the wall. And they know what's happening. And for the final point here before we move on, Rich Barris, who you may know on Twitter as People's Pundit, at People's underscore Pundit, he's the director of Big Data Poll, which is one of the very few, very reliable pollsters out there, kind of like Trafalgar Group. He, in an interview with Sebastian Gorka said that he, he dished a little bit of the dirt on what is going on, what allegedly is going on behind the scenes with the donors, with the people who are backing DeSantis and the recent apparently tanking in both public polls and internal polls.
3: You know, we we know that they had this uh, 1719 donor powwow and they basically said, look, we're turning off the spigots because you're tanking in the polls. Maybe you should rethink not running exactly what you just said. Now, this uh, it's public opinion strategy. Same firm that pulled for Mitt Romney in 2012. Miraculously, they're showing uh, DeSantis uh, either beating or running very close to Trump in Iowa and New Hampshire. This comes on the heels of a Trump plus forty one in New Hampshire from Emerson polling. So, you know, I mean, so they're camp- just making this crap up, Rich, right? Making it up, Dr. Gorker. They're making it up. Spencer Kimball, who I know at Emerson, is uh, you know, he's not as left wing as some of these other media pollsters and university pollsters, but he's not throwing a poll for Donald Trump. You know, so the difference is that's publicly funded. He gets a grant through the university. This is funded in Axios. They really do a word salad. It's a group that backs DeSantis, but isn't affiliated with DeSantis. That's who funded it. It's so ridiculous. They're just fabricating it out of whole cloth.
0: So it sounds like behind the scenes, even they know that if there ever was a window for DeSantis, it's closed by this point.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, especially after the after East Palestine, after – and here's the thing with DeSantis is he experienced a little bit of the bump that a lot of the other 2016 candidates experienced when they ran against Trump. If you remember, you would have one candidate after another that would rise in the polls. It would look like they were going to overtake Trump. Yep. The voters would become enamored with him. They would take a good look, and after a while, it would be like, eh, I mean, if I'm going to vote for this, I might as well vote for Trump. Because it's the reality is there are a lot of Trump supporters who are very soft in their support for Trump, but DeSantis is not good enough to pull them away. Because the thing is, in order to beat Trump as a Republican, you have to offer the kind of nationalism that Trump is offering. You have to be a good campaigner. You have to be an eloquent speaker, and you have to credibly convince the voters that you can beat the Democrat. And DeSantis just doesn't have that. DeSantis, for one thing, on foreign policy, he's waffled. Like at first he was arguing that we should not be arming Ukraine. Then he goes on uh, Pierce Morgan's interview and basically does a 180, calls Putin a war criminal. He basically called Russia a gas station with nuclear weapons, which was a line from John McCain. So he's pretty much just copying, plagiarizing former Republican nominees who are of the neoconservative variety. So a lot of voters look at DeSantis. They like what they see, but ultimately I don't think very many of them are going to like what they see enough to – their support from trump to desantis the only people that are really going to do that are your people are your nikki haley types who don't want nikki haley
0: exactly yeah and you mentioned plagiarism too there's one more thing that i just have to point out i i did not know this until i saw this on twitter a while ago desantis just released a new book which of course is always you know a sign that he's getting ready anyone's getting ready to run for president and it's called the courage to be free and apparently that exact same title was used by the legendary actor and Second Amendment activist, Charlton Heston, for the title of his book. <laughs> Apparently, it, uh, the other day I heard that uh, someone told me, Bill Maher, on his show, Bill Maher, by the way, who obviously is no friend of the right, said of the whole trump to situation, situation, uh, paraphrasing, he said, quote, a tribute band is nice, but why would anyone go bother to see a tribute band when the original band is still playing? And, and, like, and that's... Yeah, that's yeah. a great point. Exactly, that's all you need to know, so... I, I personally cannot wait to see DeSantis get destroyed because this is by far the most insidious attempt by the right to subvert and undermine the America first agenda that Trump started. You know, obviously the left is going to do what they're going to do. That's gonna the Russia hoax and Alvin Bragg and Stormy, Day, all that crap, whatever. Of course, they're going to do that. They're the other side. What's more worrisome is what our side is doing to actively try to destroy the one person who can actually give us a fighting chance at winning. I'm more concerned about what our side is going to try to do to stop him than what they're going to try to do. We at least know what to expect from them. We don't know what to expect from someone like DeSantis. I'm still of the opinion, honestly, that DeSantis won't run. This news now seems to suggest the donors, are, as Rich Bear said, they're turning off the spigots. He may not run after all. Today we're going to discuss one of the recent
2: op-eds by Richard Hanania and his substack. Richard Hanania is a political scientist. We've covered his work pretty often here on The Right Take. And even though he's a libertarian and um, we can't stand libertarians, we hate libertarianism, we want libertarianism to be eradicated off the face of the planet because it's a disease and it's basically right-wing Marxism, Hanania does bring out a lot of – really. he does make a lot of good points and brings out a lot of the weaknesses of the American right. So he'll basically take an issue. He'll say, I don't agree with the right on this issue, but if they want to win on this issue, here's what they need to do instead of what they're doing. And it, it, most of the time, it makes sense. One of the things that he recognizes is that power, governmental power, is what drives culture, not the other way around. One of the things that Andrew Breitbart popularized was this idea that politics is downstream from culture. The idea being if you want to actually achieve something in politics and you need to influence the culture, Hanania kind of takes the opposite view on that. He, he views government as the driver of culture. If something takes hold in the bureaucracy, if something takes hold in the government, then the culture will it'll eventually trickle down to the culture, and the average person, the normie on the street, will eventually accept it. So one of his recent articles uh, is conservatives win all the time, and he's basically trying to counter the notion that conservatism is a lost cause, that conservatives have forgotten how to win, that conservatism has basically been liberalism driving the speed limit for the past 60 years. And that's one argument that you'll hear from many on the right, that conservatives don't actually conserve anything, that we're basically 2014-2015 liberals, and then in 2030 we will be 2023 liberals, and then in 2040 we will be 2030 liberals. And this is basically the story of conservatism since World War II. And he takes a few different issues, three specific issues, and he shows how the right has actually made significant progress on these issues, if not outright won these issues. So he writes, on the right, there's a self-pitying narrative that's taken hold in which democracy and conventional political activism are hopeless, and the conservative movement has been doing nothing but losing for decades. The 1990s thinker Sam Francis has recently enjoyed something of a resurgence. Right In 1994, he argued, quote, American conservatism, in other words, is a failure. And all the think tanks, magazines, direct mail barons, inaugural balls, and campaign buttons cannot disguise or alter it. Virtually every cause to which conservatives have attached themselves for the past three generations has been lost. And the tide of political and cultural battle is not likely to turn anytime soon. But he points out that one of the arguments that a lot of conservatives make is that because America is becoming a less white country, then it's becoming a less conservative country. of course, being a libertarian, he doesn't really have any kind of ethno-nationalist feelings whatsoever. Hanania is pretty much, as most libertarians are, is just a complete globalist. He doesn't see ethnicity, doesn't see race, doesn't think it's just all made up, and he pretty much doesn't care that America's becoming a less white country. But putting that aside, he takes a few different specific political issues that the right has focused on over the past 50 years, and he shows how conservatives actually have been winning on those issues – One of the issues, which is going to tie into our main topic, is guns. The right has made significant strides in protecting the Second Amendment since the 1960s, especially since the 1980s. And he provides a chart, a right-to-carry map in the United States in 1988, and then another one from 2022. And he points out, and we'll link to this in the description, he points out in 1988, Vermont – Bernie Sanders, state of Vermont, was the only state in the country that had an unrestricted right to carry a firearm, which means without a permit. And sixteen states back in nineteen eighty eight had no right to carry at all. Yeah, Vermont. Today, every single state.
0: I was say, Vermont is one of those weird states that being despite being in North in New England, you know, in the Northeast and being a generally blue state that goes blue in presidential elections. And of course, yes, Bernie Sanders is home state, it's also very, very pro-gun. And I think that's actually one of the few things that Bernie was attacked on from his left when he ran against Hillary in 2016. It was Hillary and her supporters said, oh, you're pro-gun, you're soft on guns. And of course he kind of had no response to that because it's like, yo, I'm from Vermont. What do you want me to do? So that that is kind of an interesting yeah, reputation that Vermont has. You, you can't win Vermont if you're against the Second Amendment. You just can't win there because that's the one issue that the,
2: the hippies from the 60s who basically colonized Vermont, that's why Vermont is so left-wing is because it was it's basically a hippie colony. They... Very strongly pro-gun. They were very strongly pro-Second Amendment because they were government dissidents in the 60s. And in their mindset, if that being left wingers, if they wanted to protect themselves from the right wing government from the Nixon administration, they needed to keep and bear arms. So it, it's kind of funny. I was stayed at this hostel in Washington, D.C., uh, run by a total hippie couple, like an older couple in their late fifties, early sixties. You could tell they were they were exactly the kind that would be like the the prototypical East Coast left wing hippie in the sixties and seventies, and their whole wall and everything was just decked out in left wing uh, paraphernalia. But on their refrigerator was a was a huge sticker that said "Defend the Second Amendment," and it was an, an RA sticker. Um, another time, whenever I was campaigning for Charlie Baker for his re election in twenty eighteen in Massachusetts, I went to this this home in. Uh, what's the name of that, that town up in northwest Massachusetts? It's an old blue-collar Democratic town. Uh, East Adams, or Adam North Adams, North Adams, Massachusetts. I go to this home, and it's just completely decked out in NRA stuff, like National Rifle Association stickers all over the front door and the windows and everything. So I'm thinking, okay, these are my people. I knock on the door. The lady comes out. I tell her I'm campaigning for Charlie Baker. Who's Charlie Baker? Uh, lady, he's your, he's your governor. He's the <laughs> governor of Massachusetts. Is he Republican or Democrat? Uh, He's Republican. Ah, F you, I'm not voting for no stupid Republican, slams the door in my face. And NRA stickers all over the door. So yes, yeah, so there's a lot of – there is a strong left-wing pro-gun, pro-Second Amendment stance in New England and especially in Vermont. So in 1988, Vermont was actually the most pro-Second Amendment state in the country. That, however, changed because the right made significant strides on the Second Amendment issue. Um, today, every state has at least some right to concealed carry. And that's, of course, thanks to no, sp- uh, no small part of the Supreme Court. But most states have gone much further than the judicial decisions required. Half of the states in the country today have unrestricted concealed carry, and most of the rest require a license but grant uh, one to almost anyone who applies. There are some states who have a – I don't remember what exactly it's called, but it's a May – I think it's called a May issue state. In other words, you apply for a permit and uh, for a permit, and the sheriff's office or the police chief may issue you a permit depending on whether or not they think you're mentally fit to carry a gun. It's one of those things where it's kind of at the sheriff's discretion. If he likes you, he can give one to you. If he doesn't like you, well, you're kind of up a creek without a paddle. So Massachusetts is like that. Some of the other states are like that. The more, some of the more liberal states are like that. But it, one thing Anania points out is that back in 1988, Texas, Mississippi, and Arkansas did not allow concealed carry permits. They simply did not allow it. You were not allowed to have a concealed carry. You were not allowed to carry a gun in Texas, Mississippi, or Arkansas that was concealed back in 1988. So this is how far the right has actually moved away from the restrictive gun laws that we had in most states back in the 80s. And, you know, we look back on those times. We'll we'll see pictures of high schoolers with gun racks in their trucks, you know, carrying hunting rifles. But back then – The idea of carrying a gun for self-defense just was not something that crossed people's minds because we didn't have mass shootings. We didn't have school shootings. You didn't have to worry about being gunned down in the street by some psychopath. Americans didn't suffer from all the mental illnesses that we suffer from today. We didn't have to worry about all the crazy, drugged up homeless people that any one of whom could pull out a gun at any time and shoot you. So back then, yes, we, we did have a lot more respect for the Constitution, but we allowed more restrictive gun laws. Because we didn't fear our neighbors. And this is kind of the way it is in a lot of European countries. We will look down on European countries because you're not allowed to carry a gun. But in a lot of those places, you don't need to. It doesn't even cross people's minds to ever carry a gun. I mean, in times in my life when I've lived in more upscale neighborhoods, carrying a weapon never even crossed my mind. Because the chances of you being assaulted or robbed are basically zero. So... You know, the, the environment is what has changed Americans' opinions on on carrying guns a lot, just as much as the Supreme Court has, because even a lot of liberals now, it, you're n- you're just not going to make the argument to them that they shouldn't be allowed to carry weapons because even a lot of liberals in big cities, they now have concealed carry. But that's one issue. It's the Second Amendment. Another issue is abortion. So according to the Guttmacher Institute, within 100 days of the Dobbs decision, no fewer than 66 clinics – Across 15 states stopped offering abortion services. Even before that, the trend in abortions was downward, in part due to restrictions that red red states were placing on providers. The number of abortions in the U.S. peaked at 1.6 million a year in the early 90s, and it's declined to fewer than 1 million a year in recent years. Since the Dobbs decision, 13 states have enacted full bans on abortion, with a handful of others creating new limits. So, uh, I mean, this is one issue that the right would have never dreamed that Roe v. Wade would be overturned, say, even 10 years ago, uh, whenever, even whenever Trump was elected. A lot of people on the right were like, yeah, okay, maybe he'll appoint some decent judges, but the, it's kind of a pipe dream that Roe v. Wade is ever going to get overturned. Well, look, here we are in 2023, and, um, and Roe v. Wade is overturned, and the abortion rate is down massively, almost cut in half compared to what it was 30 years ago when America was arguably, according to the right, a better country. So this is a second, um, second issue. Another one is schooling and parental rights. In the 1960s and 1970s, it was almost completely illegal to homeschool. It, it didn't matter where you were. Red state, blue state, liberal state, conservative state, n- nobody homeschooled in the 60s and 70s. Nowadays, there are millions of children who are homeschooled, and it's virtually completely legal in every single state. There's only a handful of states in the Northeast that have minimal restrictions, but even there, it's completely legal to homeschool. Now, a lot of this is part in due, is due to the changing culture. Just like with guns, a lot of people now see the need to carry a gun because the country is becoming less safe. A lot of people now want to homeschool their kids because of the lack of safety in schools and because of the degenerate indoctrination in schools. So as public schools decline, naturally, the desire for homeschooling has increased. But that is also due in no small part to conservative activists campaigning to legalize homeschooling. And you can t- you can throw in school choice with this as well, charter schools. They just weren't that much of a thing back then. Back in say thirty years ago, forty years ago, charter schools are, I believe, in every single state today. And in some states, they actually successfully compete with the public school system. He also points out taxes, how the marginal tax rate went down massively. This is one area that's kind of not that important because, I mean. Taxes, we've kind of, the right has kind of shifted its view on taxes. We no longer care that much about whether or not the billionaires aren't paying a lot of their wealth to the government because most billionaires are actually oppressing us more so than the government is. But this was kind of a big deal back in the 80s when Reagan successfully slashed the marginal tax, the top marginal tax rate from 69% down to 37%. And it's not just the uber rich, it's also the middle class that has seen their taxes continually drop and has stayed fairly low compared to other developed nations. And this is of course because the right has been successful and has won on the issue of taxation. So these are just these are four issues that Richard Hanania points out that the right has successfully won on, not just made a few small gains, but has massively routed the left on. So he asks why are conservatives so angry? Why is it that conservatives are constantly so depressed and feel like that they're not winning anything? Like the country has lost everything is getting worse and worse as time goes on when these are four clear issues that the right has been winning on. And the, the argument he makes is that most people on the new right, they focus on the issues of gender and racial identity. And on those issues, the left is just running away. They're just running up the scoreboard. But he points out if you, if you look at the difference between how the right engages on these issues, and say how the, the right engages on guns, on taxes, on school choice, on, um, on abortion – The main issue is the right refuses to engage in these issues with a lot of money and a lot of political capital. There is no equivalent on the right for anti-trans legislation the way there is um, for the National Rifle Association. There is no Grover Norquist on the right to counter gay propaganda in schools. We just don't have billionaires who are willing to throw their weight and their money behind the issues of identity politics the way they are, in support of the Second Amendment and in support of lower taxation. And until the right is willing to fund you know, anti-LGBT propaganda, then you're going to continue to see the right lose on these particular areas. But the main point that, he's, that he wants to drive home to the right is that the right can win on issues that they're willing to fund, on issues that they're willing to take a stand on. The reason why the left continues to win on the transgender issue is because they're the only ones who show up to the fight. You know, it's kind of like a good example is recently whenever um, President Biden tweeted about gay rights, he signed he signed some kind of executive order, and um, I don't remember what exactly it was. It was a few months ago. There was some executive order like uh, like recognizing gay people for their you know their progress over the uh, the previous decades, and the comments were full of a bunch of conservatives basically yawning, saying, "Okay, this is not an issue Let's get back to gas prices. Let's get back to inflation." Oh my God. Well, we, when you do that, you, whenever you change the subject, you're basically just throwing in the towel. You're basically raising the white flag and saying, okay, you can have this issue. And that's why you're that's why you're starting to see children be groomed. That's why you're seeing teachers grooming children to become transgender. That's why you're seeing them groom them to become gay. That's why you're seeing transgenders just act out and start shooting up schools because the right can refuses to engage on these issues. And until the right is willing to engage on the issue of sexuality, the same way they were they were willing to engage on the issue of guns or abortion, then the left is just going to continue to run roughshod over the right on these issues.
0: And that, of course, is a perfect segue to the main topic of this episode, as you hinted at towards the very end there. As you guys know, uh, on Monday, this last Monday, March the 27th, There was a shooting at the Covenant School, a Presbyterian school in Nashville, Tennessee. The shooting started at about 10 a.m. Central Time. Uh, The culprit in this shooting was 28-year-old Audrey Elizabeth Hale. It's important to get this right because we here at The Right Take always make sure to properly deadname these tranny freaks. She was a woman. She was a biological woman who believed she was a man. She used he, him pronouns on her LinkedIn profile and went by the name Aiden. Hale, wielding a rifle and two handguns, killed six people in the school, three adult staff members and three nine-year-old students, three third graders. The three students were Evelyn Diekhaus, Haley Scruggs, and William Kinney. The three adult victims were substitute teacher Cynthia Peake, 61-year-old custodian Mike Hill, and 60-year-old Catherine Kuntz, the head of the school. Hale was ultimately gunned down by two Nashville PD officers, Rex Engelbert and Michael Colazzo. And interestingly enough, uh, within 24 hours, the Nashville PD released the body cam footage. It's pretty uh, intense stuff, the body cam footage of the two officers. Um, so you see the perspective because they were the two who ultimately put bullets in Hale. Rex Engelbert uh, was the one who initially fired the shots from his rifle while Hale was still standing up at a window, a second story window in like a massive rotunda area, firing down at police vehicles. Uh, officer Engelbert fired the shots that dropped Hale to the floor. And then as officer Colazzo was approaching, Hale was apparently still moving, still reaching for one of her guns. And he plugged her full of several more bullets, uh, ultimately killing her, and they still, of course, had their guns trained on her, were screaming, you know, stop moving, hands away from the weapon, after she's clearly already dead, as she deserved to be at that point. Um, and very quickly, reports are already coming out about her past, and very quickly very clearly, the motivations are becoming obvious. She used to be a student at this very school, the Covenant Presbyterian School, and we now know through an article here at the Daily Mail that her Christian parents refused to indulge in her trans delusions. They would not call her by male pronouns. They would not call her Aiden. They called her Audrey. They recognized her as female, as good parents are supposed to. They did everything they could. At this point, this it kind of it becomes sad when you think about it because of course a lot of times, you know these freaks become trannies. It's a lot of it is because the parents groomed them. They, they were raised by a gay couple. They're raised by a far-left couple like the um the tragic situation, the uh, the James and Jeff Younger situation, where uh, this man was married to a woman, a a pediatrician, by the way, so you know, a licensed doctor to work with kids, a psychotic left wing woman who decided she was going to make their son a, a girl, make their son a tranny, and the father resisted fiercely he, in the courts and the court of public opinion, and of course, a very corrupt judge in the state of Texas who really needs to be removed from that bench by any means necessary i'm convinced but this judge ruled in the woman's favor and said nope she's right take away the kid and get full custody gave full custody of the kid to this woman they moved to california now she's pumping the kid full of drugs and forcing him to cross-dress and everything so yeah a lot of times it's due to just freak parents like this but in this case the parents didn't go along with her delusions they they still told her you know you're a woman act like it And they tried to help her, you know, they they tried to do everything they could. So sometimes, like a mental illness, this kind of thing that it is, of course, transgenderism is a mental illness. It just happens irrespective of the parents. So naturally, of course, the response to this, as we can imagine, has been from the mainstream media. The moment it came out, the first reports were kind of swirling around on social media that the shooter was a tranny. And initially, I was skeptical. A lot of people I know were skeptical as well, because if you remember, Jacob, uh, after the Uvalde shooting in Texas, there were initial reports that the shooter there was a tranny and people were circulating photos of a dude wearing a skirt that they said was the shooter. It looked like the shooter, but it turned out that that was not the shooter. That was just some other mentally ill guy. So, of course, the mainstream media was like, oh, fake news blames the shooting on a transgender woman. So naturally, we were skeptical. But then it sure enough, it turned out this is true. Audrey Hale was a tranny activist, a woman who believed she was a man, and she shot up a Christian school full of students. So it's very obvious what the motivations were here, and that this is an absolute nightmare for the left politically to try to justify this one. You know, just like trying to justify the stop Asian hate trend when every single high profile killing of an Asian for uh, in America for racial reasons was being committed by a black culprit. You know, it just they have no idea how to cope with this. So. In this case, of course, they very quickly turned to the the narrative, as we kind of guessed, that the real victims are trannies themselves. NBC ran an article headline, quote, fear pervades Tennessee's trans community amid focus on Nashville shooters' gender identity, end quote. Oh, I feel so sorry for them. Yeah, those are the real victims, not not the six dead people, the three dead nine-year-old kids. This is like, you know, in the aftermath of 9-11. hey, if they're – Oh yeah,
2: for sure. Yeah, definitely uh, similar to nine eleven. But hey, if they're that afraid, maybe they'll get out of Nashville.
0: Maybe they'll decide that uh, they're not safe in Nashville and they'll leave. That would be a, a great thing. Yeah, get the hell out of that city and go go somewhere far far away where they'll, we won't have to. Infest. Yeah, go infest some liberal hellhole. Go to New York. Go to San Francisco, where you belong. Yeah, don't don't do this to a, a a decent city like Nashville. Uh, but it gets so much worse. Uh, Jack Posobiec documented this on Twitter. A Washington Post contributor agreed with a tranny activist who justified Audrey Hale's actions. Uh, These are screenshots, of course, because I believe these tweets have since been deleted, but the internet is forever. The person in question, the the initial, the tranny in question, going by Kat Amarco, declared, quote, I don't condone Audrey Hale's actions, though – stop right there. You can always get it from these leftists. They always – they start off with, oh, I don't support what they did, but – there should not be yep. a but here. All right. You either support this or you don't. Catamarco says, quote, I don't condone Audrey Hill's actions, though I understand their outrage using the pronouns there. Their outrage against an intolerant state that brainwashes children through religious indoctrination. The reality is this human still identified as that child attending that school and carried that pain into adulthood, end quote. So blaming the school for being a Christian school and not reinforcing her insane, perverted sexual delusions. In response to this, a Washington Post opinion contributor named Mike Wise tweeted, quote, This is as deep and real as it gets. Thank you, end quote. That's the Washington Post, guys. So you know this again. This uh, they love if uh, the absolute most you may get out of the left is maybe, oh, these are just some fringe radicals on on Twitter saying this. This isn't the mainstream. Oh yeah. So the Washington Post is a mainstream. Got it. Next point. So
2: Catamarco is pretty much just guessing that. Hale went through some kind of uh, childhood trauma when she attended the school. This is pure speculation. Hale did leave a manifesto. The police still have not released that manifesto. They claim that they're continuing their investigation, and once the investigation is complete, then they may release the manifesto. I personally don't think they're going to because we can all pretty much guess what is in that manifesto. A non-binary woman goes into a Christian school, and kills a bunch of people. What do you think is in that manifesto? However, we don't know for sure what's in the manifesto any more than Catamarco does, so she's pretty much just speculating that this person experienced some kind of trauma in elementary school. From what I read, one of the uh, teachers at that school who remembers... Hale said that he only remembered her in the third and fourth grade, and after that, he thinks she transferred to another school. So, we don't even know, she might not have even attended from kindergarten through sixth grade. This might have been a very small blip on the radar of her past that she has very little memory of. Because one of the things, and this may be getting kind of getting ahead of where you want to go with the the dialogue and the story, but one of the things that the police revealed, did, did reveal from her, uh, from the journal or the manifesto that she kept. Was that she initially planned to shoot up a different school, and this was her second option. She was planning on going to a different school to shoot it up, but because of the security at that school, yes. she decided to go for this one because this one was far less secure. there. And Interestingly enough, there was no officer on duty. There was no school resource officer on duty at this school. It's a very small school. I think they have 22 teachers. 200 students it's inside a church like it's not even a separate school standalone school it's part of the, of the covenant presbyterian church so it, i think it's very um, loose speculation and probably completely false that hale hey, experienced any kind of childhood trauma there that caused her to target this school
0: and additional reports claim that she was actually planning on targeting her relatives but she apparently decided to go to the school first for whatever reason and of course rightfully was stopped and killed by the police before she could kill her relatives. I'm kinda of surprised that she didn't start with a relative. Do you think of like um the the Sandy Hook shooter, Adam Lanza, he killed his mother first before he then went to the school. So it's you know, by the grace think of God, her the parents survived.
2: shooter the Evalde shooter shot his grandmother before yes, going to the school.
0: That is correct. Yeah, they a lot of them do generally start with a relatives. So again, you know, by the grace of God her parents have survived and will be able to tell us if if they decide to come forward to tell us more. Uh but on that note, yeah, the manifesto, sure enough Pro, tranny, LGBT, whatever, XYZ groups have been actively demanding that the Tennessee Police Department not release the manifesto. Uh, From Newsweek, headline, quote, Audrey Hale manifesto release raises major concerns from LGBTQ plus groups, end quote. So again, like the NBC article, not even like they don't care about the dead little kids. They care more about, oh, the possible backlash against us poor trans people who just want to exist, you know, because one of our own shot up a bunch of Christian kids and several. Uh, But another mainstream media talking point here, uh, of course, once again, rushing to blame the guns. And especially in the context of transgenderism, you know, because Tennessee, arguably more than any other state, Tennessee has been... Based on transgenderism, they have passed law after law after law, shutting down drag queen story hours for kids, shutting down trans genital mutilation surgeries for minors. And so Newsweek, once again, had a headline, quote, Tennessee Republicans ban on drag shows criticized after mass shooting, basically saying, oh, those dumb hicks in Tennessee. They focus more on banning drag queens than banning guns, you know, although in this case, clearly banning drag shows and all that stuff is the right course of action because, again, it's obvious, this is a basic talking point, it ain't the gun, it's the person pulling the trigger. And in this case, the person pulling the trigger was a deranged, tranny freak. And this, of course, only comes after weeks and weeks and weeks ongoing escalation of violent rhetoric from trannies that has been documented as, again, certainly since the 2022 midterms when transgenderism kind of started really becoming a major issue. Glenn Youngkin kind of brought it to the forefront with, again, his campaign for governor of Virginia, and it certainly was in some circles. It was not emphasized enough by the GOP, as we talked about in our midterm postmortem episode. The cultural issues were not emphasized enough, but it has nonetheless taken on a life of its own. Many states, many different legislatures across the country have passed or introduced laws Banning men from women's sports, banning you know trans bathrooms, so you know women have to go to women's bathrooms and men have to go to men's bathrooms. Banning drag queen story hours, banning the surgeries, banning the hormones, all that stuff. And of course, this has led to increased rhetoric from these tranny freaks calling for violence, basically not so subtly suggesting violence. Uh, this is a, a post on Instagram with a few examples. This is from an account called Mostly Peaceful Memes. Great Twitter account, great Instagram account. Uh, titled quote: Trans activist tweets aging well, uh, and this features a ABC tweet that is then quote tweeted by a top uh, trans activist named Alejandra Car- Caraballo, who has tweeted, who has uh, testified before Congress. I believe that's a man pretending to be a woman. Now, that's usually the go-to is men pretending to be women. Again, it's a rare exception, like Audrey Hale, a woman pretending to be a man. The ABC tweet reads quote: Breaking: A suspect is dead following a shooting at a private elementary school in Nashville, Tennessee, according to police. End quote. Caraballo then tweeted, quote, tweeted that saying, quote, thank God Tennessee protected the children from the so called horrors of drag and gender affirming care so they can be shot up at school by an AR 15 instead, end quote. Oof, that one did not age well. Another one here, this is from, a, I believe this is a Reddit post. Um, again, reacting to the, uh, the news of a Nashville shooting. A top comment with over 5,000 likes, 5,000 upvotes saying, quote, better protect those kids from drag queens and trans people. And then the responses are great. The responses say, this comment hasn't aged well, unfortunately. Well, that didn't age well. Tragic regardless of perpetrator. And one more comment. This comment aged like milk. And then one more here from just two days before the shooting, March 25th, a tweet from an account called Rainbow Youth Project USA. F- gag me. Uh, tweeted an article from LGBTQNation.com. Ah, yes. a Clearly an unbiased source. Headline, quote, Tucker Carlson is afraid gun-toting trans people will start political violence. The tweet says, quote, Tucker Carlson is afraid gun-toting trans people will start political violence. They want to be able to commit it, and they want you defenseless so you can't fight back. Oh, that, again, that aged, like, fine, for the finest bottle of milk, if I do say so myself. And then one last picture here from this uh, Mostly Peaceful memes post is just a a freak in a mask uh, wearing, uh, all black, wearing a black mask and holding a sign saying, trans rights or else and it depicts a bunch of different guns in the pink blue and white color scheme of the tranny flag so again that this and this is not accidental this is not just a few fringe examples this is a clear pattern in response to legislation cracking down on them they basically say if we don't have our if we're not free to sexually groom and rape and mutilate and indoctrinate little kids, we're going to kill you. We're, we're going to fight back with violence because they always say it's like you're threatening our right to exist, quote unquote. You know, you know, they one of the sayings from the left. It's so, you know, whoever came up with this feels so clever is respect existence or expect resistance. They love talking about that one. You know, it's our right to exist. No, well, it's your right well, to exist as a human. Be- or go, go ahead, Jacob.
2: Well, trannies have been a major, major faction within Antifa going back five years, five, yes. six years. You, If you look at any major Antifa rally, there's always a bunch of trannies involved. Um, it's funny, all the, the victims of, of police violence, uh, the Antifa victims of police violence, they always tend to be, they turn out to be transgender because it makes it much easier to uh, make them into martyrs if they're an oppressed minority rather than just some random white dude who got mixed in with Antifa.
0: Exactly. That's why. And funny enough, we'll come to Andy No in just a bit. But Andy No, who of course does fantastic work reporting on Antifa, he always posts these massive collages of mugshots whenever a round of Antifa freaks are arrested in Portland or what have you. They're always, they universally, they're pasty white, really ugly. And a lot of them have the dyed hair, pink hair, glue hair, which is so kind of a sign of being a tranny. A lot of them do look kind of androgynous. You can't tell what gender they're supposed to be. That's by design, of course. So, yeah, they are the most vicious because they're the ones with the least morals. They're the ones with no sense of decency. If these people believe it's okay to rape and mutilate little kids, then of course they're going to think it's okay to shoot people up because you won't respect their right to rape and mutilate little kids. And one thing that's been drawn, uh, a lot of attention has been drawn to this in the aftermath of Nashville, is a group called Our Rights DC posting all over social media in just days before this shooting calling for, quote, a trans day of vengeance on April 1st, with promotional posters advising attendees to wear a mask and bring a buddy. So I was always wondering, wondering why wear a mask? You know, I mean, I mean, of course, yes, they still believe the the COVID nonsense, like you have to wear a, a mask, you know, or else you're, you're going to die of COVID or whatever. But wear a mask, it's obvious why at this point they're still wearing masks when they have these mass demonstrations and gatherings and whatnot. It's clearly because... They want to continue to hide their identities. They want to, you know, whenever surveillance cameras or what have you, capture them, you know, smashing windows or throwing a Molotov cocktail, it's harder to identify them. So it's quite obvious what's going on here. Uh, the poster here reads, quote, Trans Day of Vengeance, stop genocide. April 1st at 11 a.m., assemble at SCOTUS, Supreme Court of the United States, wear a mask, bring a buddy. And they have the Twitter accounts here, at Our Rights DC. Uh, our rights dc at proton.me a proton mail account because they want to be super secure about it and their tiktok account because why not and one more little like tagline here on this poster it says quote we need more than visibility end quote so it's it's beyond obvious that this has kind of been in the making for a while and this is definitely the most high profile one yet but this is not actually the first case of a mass shooting or mass act of violence by a deranged tranny Andy No did a little a nice little thread here, a handy little thread, documenting some of the most recent examples of trans-carried-out mass shootings. In September 2018, a female-to-male identifying trans shooter named Snochia Mosley, African-American, by the way, murdered three colleagues at a Rite Aid distribution center in Aberdeen, Maryland. Mosley then shot herself rather than face being arrested. May 2019... A female-to-male-identifying trans shooter named Alec McKinney and accomplice Devin Erickson carried out a deadly mass shooting at STEM School Highlands Ranch in Douglas County, Colorado. McKinney told investigators transphobic students were targeted. So there's no ambiguity there. They, of course, she survived to confess to investigators what her motives were. That right there. A lot of these shooters, too, like the ones that survive, they usually go for the uh, insanity defense. You know, they'll do like the Colorado theater shooter. His name is eluding me, but he immediately dyed his hair orange and puts on this manic grin and wide-eyed look every time he's seen in court or otherwise in public because they go for insanity. They try to say, oh, we were just crazy. We don't know what we were doing. But this one actually was so convinced she was morally in the right. She confessed, yeah, I killed them because they were transphobic. They believe their rights supersede, their right to be degenerate freaks, supersede your right to exist. And one more here. In November of 2022, a trans non binary suspect named Anderson Aldrich, uh, born Nicholas, Nicholas Aldrich, a guy, allegedly carried out. Why did you have to put allegedly there, Mr. No? Come on, we know he did it. Carried out the deadly mash. Oh, that's. I, I can't stand that allegedly crap. This is off topic, real, hick, real quick here. This got my noggin jogging the other day when I was thinking about these shootings. Whenever the shooter dies at the scene, like Audrey Hale did, all the reports subsequently say, oh, yeah, the shooter, the Nashville shooter, the Presbyterian shooter, what have you. They were the shooter. She was the shooter. But when they survive and then they're they're arrested and subsequently they go to trial, it suddenly becomes alleged shooter, the accused shooter. Like, come on, they're on surveillance camera when they were caught doing it. We know they did it. All right. I'm so sick of this. This like we have to beat around the bush and play nice. And be like, oh, allegedly. No. OK, this guy did it. Nicholas, Nicholas Aldrich carried out the deadly mass shooting at the gay nightclub Club Q in Denver. The shooting was quickly blamed on the right by left-wing activists, Democrats, and Antifa. But when it emerged that Mr. Aldrich is trans non-binary, they said they didn't believe it, end quote. So this is just the fourth, the most recent one, and I think the highest uh, body count, unfortunately, out of those four. So this is a trend that's been building up for a while over the last few years, coinciding with the rise of transgenderism in general. We, at some point, Jacob, I know we're, we're going to do this. we got to give it the time it deserves. We're going to do like a long take, deep dive. On transgenderism, because there is so much that needs to be said about how it is fake, it is a fad, it's a mental illness that has been packaged by the mainstream media, by Hollywood, by by social media, by culture. As a as of course they're not going to say it's a fad, but that's what it is. It's a fad. It's a trend, and it is ruining the lives of young men and women who think they're being like socially acceptable. They're they're being trendy. They're being themselves. They're expressing themselves by mutilating, mutilating themselves and plugging themselves full of drugs that you can't exactly reverse that process. We could go on and on about that. But this is something that's not going to stop anytime soon. It's going to get worse. And now we know what they really are intending to do, what they are prepared to do. And they're being open about it. You have the Twitter accounts justifying Audrey Hale. You have them calling for a trans day of vengeance now that, to our knowledge, that event has not been canceled and will still happen on April 1st at the Supreme Court. What a horrible April Fool's Day prank that is. And something needs to be done about it. We have to stop this madness before more dead kids are the result.
2: Well, transgenderism is something that a lot of people who are mentally unstable have latched onto just because it's a trend that the mainstream institutions are demanding that normal people accept as something that is inherent in people the same way as they've demanded that people accept that people are inherently gay. Milo Yiannopoulos, posted a chart on his telegram that's very telling it's a google search chart from 2004 on anorexia and transgender anorexia peaked in interest in google searches in 2008 and it has subsequently declined and interestingly enough those lines cross one another around 2015 whenever transgenderism started becoming mainstream There were very few searches on transgenderism, and suddenly there's a spike in transgenderism, and that spike correlates to the drop in interest in anorexia. And he wrote, at any one time, there's a sizable chunk of the population that is simply nuts, and they will pick whatever nuts trend is doing the rounds. So anorexia was doing the the rounds 20 years ago, so now anorexia is out, transgenderism is in. So a lot of these people who would have just been anorexic, they are now changing their body, they're now chopping off their organs, and going through sex changes and taking shots. And even if they're not doing this, and we don't really know if Audrey Hale had gone through any kind of hormone treatment, uh, for all we know, she could have simply been non-binary or planned to do that in the future. She may have been 100% female, but just wanted to do this in the future. It is an interesting question because there was a, I saw a study that was done in Sweden in 2013, and it showed that when women are injected with testosterone, they become as violent as men. So the reason why it's very unra- it's very rare for a woman to carry out a mass shooting or a girl in a school to carry out a mass shooting the way it is for boys is because of the difference in testosterone. But once you inject them with that testosterone, they become as criminally prone as men. That's why well, women like to say, well, men cr- uh, commit most of the crimes. Well, yeah, because men are naturally more violent. It's just simply in our nature as opposed to women but whenever you're taking people who normally would be anorexic and have mental illness that's really not threatening anyone other than themselves, and you normalize transgenderism, you are creating a ticking time bomb. And one of the ways that this, uh, the thing that makes this different is because anorexia 20 years ago was not something that the institutions endorsed. It was not something like you didn't have anorexic pride month. You didn't have rallies in favor of supporting anorexia and demanding that normal people accept that that is normal. No, most people who suffered from that, they generally were encouraged to seek help, and society did not condone that. They they pitied them and they tried to get them to seek help. Whereas today, if you try to get a transgender person to seek mental health, then they're liable to either jump on you and try to beat you up, um, make a scene, or worst case scenario, do what Audrey Hale did, pull out a gun and blow your head off. So it's kind of, it's, I've seen individuals, um, I've seen individuals actually go through this transformation where they start out a little withdrawn. They start out a little weird. Um, they lacked, they really are into art. It's, it's interesting, the connection between art and mental illness if, if you ever notice, uh, people who are really, really into art, they also – they're not – there's something wrong. I'm not saying that every artist is like that. There's lots of really <laughs> great artists who are perfectly normal people.
0: It but might explain why modern also, art is so terrible.
2: <laughs> it, it does explain why modern art is so terrible because art is it, – it's a way to express one's anger. It's a way to express one's angst. It's a way for a person who can't verbally express themselves well to express themselves through other means. And when that art starts to turn really dark, that's when there's a problem. And I've seen this in individuals in my own life where you'll have someone who is like, okay, they're, they're artistic, and you encourage them, and they keep going and keep going. But then you notice that art, it's not just nature scenes. It starts to look demonic. And rather than putting the brakes on it and, saying, uh, and noticing, hey, there's something wrong here. Like there's something wrong with this person. Well, maybe we need to try to encourage them to move away from that art and find a, a, a different hobby. Instead of doing that, people will ignore it. And this is one thing that parents will sometimes do. I'm not saying Audrey Hale's parents did this, but I, I mean, they obviously encouraged her to go to the NOSI School of Art where she got her degree and as a, to work as a graphic designer. But then it eventually spirals to where they become more and more withdrawn. Um, they reject religion, they reject authority. They reject tradition, everything that was ever, you know, every everything that is conservative, they completely reject. And pretty soon they start rejecting normality. Eventually it starts to be, well, I'm gay, but being gay isn't good enough. So now, okay, well, I'm transgender, but even being transgender isn't good enough. Okay, well, now I'm non-binary. And it's, they keep grasping for something that is so far out of the mainstream that they cannot be. It, it's very similar to hipsters. You know, with, you know, moving it over to sexuality, the, the hipster back in like 15 years ago would pick a pick music that no one's ever heard of and make that their music. But whenever that music became mainstream, then they couldn't like that music anymore because it was mainstream. So They had to find something else to like. And then this was their new favorite music. People would find out about that. They would listen to it. It would go mainstream. That artist would go big and then they've got to ditch that artist. No, I don't listen to that anymore. That's mainstream, you know, corporate music. It's very similar to to this. They constantly have to become more and more weird, more and more freakish to be different, to make themselves different. And this is something that people need to, especially parents, need to recognize if they want to be able to nip this in the bud. You can't simply ignore the problem and pray about it. And I've got a feeling that's probably what Audrey Hale's parents did because in the Daily Mail article, it says that they wouldn't let her dress as a man at home, but they knew that she was dressing as a man outside of the home. And they didn't seek mental health for like they didn't try to get her committed. They didn't report her to friends or family and, you know, mention, hey, this is a problem. Something's wrong with her mentally. There is if someone is born a woman and they're dressing as a man, there's something wrong with them mentally. Like that's that's a problem. It's not just them being weird. You're not going to accomplish anything by just praying for them like they need help. They need mental health uh, and mental health help. And this is something that uh, that her parents just. Never, I mean, she was, um, she had some kind of emotional, she had been diagnosed with some kind of emotional disorder. But I mean, this is 2023. Everybody today is diagnosed with some kind of emotional <laughs> disorder. That's not really out of the ordinary,
0: especially, yeah, like, but, yeah, zoop- just, just, Zoomers and millennials. Yeah. They're all, they all have some oh, yeah. diagnosed condition. They're all on some kind of drug or something. Like it's, they're all like allergic to the, the dust particles that come down from the ceiling tiles or crap like that or the, the buzzing of the overhead lights, you know, triggers them or something. It's, it's ridiculous. And it's a further testament to how this particularly messed up. New generation, the Zoomers, and yes, to obviously to a big extent, our generation, millennials as well, is contributing to this that has never been seen before in human history. There's a reason this crap didn't happen with Gen X, with boomers, with the greatest generation, or with anybody else.
2: Well, it's mainstreaming mental illness, and the the reason why I think Gen X and the boomers are so ill-equipped to handle it whenever this pops up with their children is because they just see it as eccentricity. They, they don't see it yeah. as something that could turn into to danger. They don't see it's, it as dangerous. It's just a phase. Uh, one of the things yeah. that the police yeah, – yes, they, they see it as just a phase. But the problem is if it's an 8-year-old that's going through a phase, it's one, one thing. When it's a 28-year-old that's going through a phase, they're not self-sufficient. They're really weird, and they don't have any friends, and they're into really weird shit that's kind of, those are a bunch of red flags that uh, unfortunately a lot of parents don't really act on. And part of it is it, you know, parents don't want to admit that they failed. They don't want to actually go there. They don't want to actually have to admit that, okay, somewhere along the line, I failed this child. And that's why this child is acting out like this grown child is acting out like this. Like I need, if I'm going to seek help for my child, I'm going to have to you know, humble myself and realize and admit that somewhere along the line I failed as a parent and I'm gonna have to go seek outside help to get my child to be normal. And when that doesn't happen, then you end up getting Audrey Hales. You end up getting these other transgender maniacs that end up going on rampages and and taking out their anger and their angst on society. And most most mass shooters, they are suicidal. I, I don't remember there ever being a mass shooter who had a getaway plan.
0: That is correct. Most of yeah. them, they
2: they plan to go down. They plan to go down in the shooting either by their own gun or by the police's gun. And Audrey Hale, she messaged uh, someone that she was in contact with in middle school, one of her former basketball teammates, and told her less than 20 minutes before she started shooting up the school that she was going to commit suicide. And, of course, what she meant was suicide by police bullets. By so yep. she, planned, she planned to go down in the shootout.
0: She said, like, I'm going to yeah, die this, today. This some you, things- you'll probably hear about me on the news.
2: Yes. Yes. And so people used to, if people were suicidal, they would just kill themselves. But now they figure, hey, I'm going to go down a hero. I'm going to go down um, a A blaze of glory in their mind. Yep. But but yes, yeah, so just that's that's one of the ways that society in general could prevent some of this stuff from happening is just noticing red flags. Um, and a lot of times that involves parents having to have difficult conversations with adult children, like, hey, this this behavior. It's not just that it goes against my religion. It's not just that it goes against my morals. This behavior is abnormal for human beings, and you need to seek help. Like, you've got a problem. This is not normal. Like th- Those kind of conversations. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of parents, they just want to sh- show—they think, they think that if they show love, acceptance, and compassion, that the child will eventually turn around, but Love, acceptance, and compassion don't work with mentally ill people. They, they may work with someone right. who's just being rebellious and going through a phase of anger. They don't work with people who have a genuine mental illness.
0: Like if a schizophrenic person believes they are being gang-stalked by the CIA or something, then yeah, it's just telling them, oh, I'm here for you. Like you know, nice words are not going to help that person, and we keep coming back to this because yes – Transgenderism is a mental illness. It's the same way that an anorexic person may look in the mirror and they may actually be 80 pounds but they think they're 300 pounds. You know, that's it's a mental illness that needs to be addressed. They need to be given Help. And yeah, it's that's like you said, it's tough love. You gotta say, you are not a man, Audrey. You are a woman. You need to start acting like it, and we will get you help to set you straight. But of course, again, the the left, they insist, you know, hold on the conversion therapy or whatever, which conversion therapy works, by the way, first off. But second off, that they insist, no no no, you know, trans they call it gender affirming care. This is why it's so important to control the language. This is why I insist on calling them trannies. I will keep calling them trannies because I know it's derogatory and I know they freaking hate it. You got that's why I dead name them. That's why I use their original pronouns. Like in this case, she and Audrey, you control the language. Don't give these freaks an inch on the language. It is not gender affirming care. It's I call it genital mutilation surgery. That's my go to term. But also, I mean, sex change is another acceptable one, although that sound makes it sound a bit nicer than what it is. They insist that it's the right thing to do. We're affirming ourselves. We're affirming these kids, these seven-year-old kids who, who know themselves. They know their body and their sexuality before they've even hit puberty. They know themselves better than their own parents do. Like, it's insanity. But they insist it's their right to do so, and we're somehow in the wrong for trying to tell them no. So we have to keep telling them no. We have to push back. We have to be harsh about it. We have to be firm and say, this is a mental illness. This is not real, and we're going to crush this and destroy it. And yes, as base Michael Knowles said in his CPAC speech, we need to eradicate transgenderism, wipe it off the face of the earth, destroy it, get rid of it. And no, obviously, as Michael Knowles said, and as I will say now as a disclaimer, I'm not saying to wipe the people out. I'm not saying get rid of the people. I'm saying eliminate the ideology. Cure these people and eliminate the ideology so this crap does not happen again. We don't have these mentally ill freaks shooting up Christian kids because they think that they're somehow in the right to do so, to be a martyr to do so.
2: And one last thing on the family issue, a lot of times these uh, these people who are mentally ill, they're a bigger threat to their immediate family members than they are strangers, and Audrey Hale, according to the Nashville Police Department, was planning on killing family members, she was planning on shooting up the Green Hills Mall, there were a few other targets that she planned to eventually hit as well, I guess, if she made it out of the school alive, so... You know, family members, if they think they're helping their transgender relative or their odd relative who rejects reality and rejects normality, they could potentially be setting themselves up to be killed in their sleep if they're not careful. And this is one thing that people need to keep in mind when you've got a mentally deranged person who thinks there's something that they're not. It's not just a matter of loving them back to the truth by showing them love to reciprocate. I've seen this firsthand. Like people will think that they're going to like love a person back to the truth. And the person simply refuses to reciprocate because there's, they're not all there up top and they're potentially setting themselves up to be, Eliminated because the person sees them as a threat. This is th- their own family member rejects them for who they are. Like this is a, this is the twisted mentality, and who
0: are the first enemies that they're going to want to take out? One more thing that I need to say too that is important is that the underlying support is there. The left is currently, I, I want to say they're currently winning when it comes to the cultural messaging of this because they're framing it very much as the usual, oh, acceptance, it's all so beautiful. You know, they they have them trotting out on talk shows, that freak Dylan Mulvaney, that man who's now pretending to be a woman, you know, going on a talk shows so that Drew Barrymore can get on her knees in front of him and just completely bend to his will. But the Most people, I think, are still normal people in this country. And most people simply don't know what this is yet. They still, like you said, they think it's an about eccentricity. They don't think this is an actual serious mental, physical, sexual, psychological threat. If every single American was made aware of what this really entails, overwhelmingly they would be against it. Even people that normally wouldn't be on your side. And that includes, again, once again, gotta give a shout out to based Elon Musk, the the owner of Twitter who responded to a tweet from Turning Point USA's Benny Johnson, who recapped all the same mass shootings that I by trannies that I recapped earlier by Andy Ngo, uh saying, quote, The Colorado Springs shooter identified as non-binary. The Denver shooter identified as trans. The Aberdeen shooter identified as trans. The Nashville shooter identified as trans. One thing is very clear. The modern trans movement is radicalizing activists into terrorists, end quote. Elon Musk liked that tweet and responded to it with an exclamation mark that was literally his whole tweet is an exclamation mark but obviously voicing his approval for it without saying a single word another letter more he's not going to go out there and write on twitter oh yes trans people are terrorists now because he's smart enough in that sense of self-preservation but deep down inside this guy who is not necessarily right wing he's not conservative he gets this joe rogan is another example who gets this um very few issues is Joe Rogan more consistent than on transges- transgenderism. He's been against this from the beginning. He had that debate with that loser uh Adam I don't even know his last name but he's from that horrible sketch comedy show on YouTube called Adam ruins everything. He used to be a uh, one of the stars of the uh YouTube channel College Humor, uh, but now he's a total leftist freak, you know, activist. And Joe Rogan had that debate with him, he just uh ruined him and you know debunked all of his arguments for letting, you know, men compete in women's sports. So guys like joe rogan and elon musk are against this stuff we absolutely can get most people on our side in opposing this as fiercely as we do we just need to control the messaging and never back down in calling this for what it is call them trannies call them mentally ill and yes at this stage with the rhetoric they're pushing and the actions they're carrying out call them terrorists and we will win Unfortunately, that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com, the full list of social media websites and podcast platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to continue supporting us and all that we do here on the show for you, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.